Okay, well, welcome to the first series, and this series is called Eternal Rewards, and this uh, message is uh, number one in the series, and it's called Introduction to Eternal Rewards. Probably when you hear it, you'll think I've taught all there is to be taught about it, but I certainly haven't, and today we're going to just give you a, a, big, a broad picture, uh, and then within that, there'll be many questions arise, and there'll be uh, things that you'll want to know more about, but uh, in our journey... We got revelation right at the very beginning of the, uh, the teachings around eternal rewards, and they become a motivator for your life. They cause you to set a course for your life that regardless of what anyone else does, you remain focused uh, on, on eternity. Perhaps if I could put it like this, if I was to offer you $2 now or $1,000 in a week's time, what would you take? Well... Children will take the two bucks now because they can't conceive of a thousand in a week's time. But anyone who understands the value of things would say, oh man, I'll put off getting my two dollars now because I have in mind something much bigger ahead. And this is what all of this teaching is about. It's being able to lay aside some things now because there's something much bigger that God has for you. So it brings about an adjustment of what's important so you, you, you place less and less important on temporary things and more importance on eternal things. So first thing then is God is a rewarder. God is a rewarder. Uh, and uh, the first thing is uh, hope of a reward is a motivator to pursue God. Hope of a reward is a motivator what motivates us to pursue God. So in Hebrews 11.6, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So notice two things are required, that we must believe that God is present, God is real, God is uh, interested in us, God uh, wants to access us, God wants relationship with us, and two, that God rewards. He is a rewarder. In other words, that says that's something about who he is. He's a rewarder. He, uh, he rewards those who diligently pursue him. To be a rewarder is one who pays wages generously. So God is generous in uh, rewarding us for the activities we undertake on his behalf to represent him. So we see then the first thing then is that God is a rewarder and the hope that he will, re he will reward us. As we'll look in another section later on, we look at inheritance. We'll see God's promise to uh, Abraham was, I am your shield, I am your exceeding great reward. And uh, so not only is God a rewarder, but it's accessing more of him becomes one of the key aspects of our reward. So second, uh, Moses was motivated by the hope of a reward. Hope causes you to look forward to something. Hope causes you to anticipate something. Hope causes you to have expectation. Hope keeps you looking forward. You know, we're hoping for this holiday, or we're hoping for this raise, we're hoping for this new thing. So um, Moses was motivated by the hope of reward. So you look at Moses and you see his life and how he was uh, in the Pharaoh's palace. He had uh, everything possibly available to him, education, uh, a significant role, riches and wealth. Anything he wanted was his. He was a valiant warrior and he was a great man. However, he forsook it all. In other words, he gave it all up, which people would have thought was crazy. But we understand it when we read in Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. And Hebrews 11 is the book of men who responded to God, who pleased him. So without faith, without trusting him and committing our life to following him, we can't bring pleasure to him. So our goal is to bring pleasure to him, and, uh, but it requires that we exercise faith that not only that he is, but if I will give my life to his pursuit, he will reward it. So in Hebrews eleven twenty four, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God and enjoy the passing pleasures or temporary pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So we see very clearly that Moses was motivated by hope of reward. Uh, and we see several things. The first thing is about him. He refused to identify with Egypt. 
Egypt is a prophetic picture of the world with its values, its uh, rewards, its incentives, all the things in it which are very temporary in nature. So whenever the Bible refers to Egypt, it always refers to the world dominated by Satan, its values, its culture, all that's in the world, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. All of those things are enemies in the relationship with God. So see here, he says, first he refused to identify with Egypt, even though he had access to privilege and position. Second, he refused the convenient, comfortable life, just cruising along in sin with the temporary pleasure. And he chose instead that he would identify with Jesus Christ and identify with his purpose and identify with the people of God. So it's a big choice for him. It was a decision to let go a life of privilege, of position, of power, and instead to identify with God, to identify with the people of God and with the purpose of God. And he totally embraced it. So he chose to accept reproach and ridicule and misunderstanding of his peers. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. So notice that when you choose to follow Jesus, the people who, you, who knew you, don't, they think you've gone crazy, think you've gone weird, you don't do the things you used to do because you've chosen a different path. And that path has with it some hardship and it has usually the hardship of misunderstandings and ridicule by people, esteeming the reproach of Christ a greater rich than the treasures of Egypt for he looked for the reward. That word looked means to uh, have respect for. So he, he valued or had great respect for what God offered him. He must have had a revelation of it. God must have showed it to him. It means to turn the eyes away from everything else and fix them on one thing. To turn the eyes away from everything else and to fix them on one thing. So Moses, even though he's surrounded by everything he could buy, he had money, he had position, power, opportunity to sin, opportunity to have anything, he turned his eyes away from it all and fixed his eyes on something that God had showed him. An eternal reward, something that was not temporary, something that would go on into eternity forever and ever and ever and ever. So he chose the eternal over the temporal. Uh, we find also that uh, the Bible tells of other men and women of, of faith who were also motivated by the hope of reward. So in Hebrews 11.35, it says, uh, same chapter, Hebrews 11, women of people of faith, it said, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So now it's saying that, here they are, that people uh, by faith got miracles to happen. By faith they endured suffering and even death. Uh, and, and what they saw was that there was a better resurrection available for them. And this opens a whole lot of questions about resurrection. The word better resurrection implies there's a better one and there's a lesser one. One is better than the other. If you're going to have opportunity to have something or something better, you want something better. I always want a bit better for me. I want better for my children and so on. So better in this case means stronger, more noble, more excellent, greater in strength or power. So clearly there are two resurrections and one of them is a better one. One of them is stronger. One of them is more powerful. One of them has better outcomes for us. That is the first resurrection. And uh, we may touch on scriptures around the first resurrection found in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, we read up, we were just looking at people being motivated by reward. Here's another one who was motivated by reward. Paul was motivated by the hope of reward. So reward offers us something to look forward to that causes us to go through hardship. So even if you think about, you know, saving up for a house, you have the vision of the house, you pay a price, you sacrifice, your, your eyes are focused to something you're looking forward to, and that causes you to discipline your life and bring it into alignment to get the goal. And so that's what Paul, Peter, uh, Paul has in mind here. And so we read in Philippians 8 through to verse 12. 8 through to 12. So I'll read the passage. He said, Philippians 3, 8 to 12. Indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead not that I've already attained it or am already perfected but I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me brothers I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, reaching forward to the things that are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if any of us are mature, have this mind, uh, let us, as many as are mature, think this way, have this mind. And if in anything you think differently, God will even reveal this. There's a lot in there, and that's a passage I'll have to go through on its own and open it all up. And I want to just focus on this thought that he very clearly indicates that there is a prize to attain to and that he hasn't already attained it. Notice he uses the word that I might gain Christ. So he was motivated strongly by the promise of a reward. He said, everything I've succeeded in, all my position, my status, my record, everything I've done, in the light of the prize, I consider it to be just rubbish, little value. It just is nothing. And, uh, you know, often when you sit out to do a degree, it's kind of thing, if I just get that degree, then I've got everything. And then you realize when you got it, you don't know anything. It's like it's, it's the other side of it when you don't have it. It doesn't seem, it seems like it's everything. But when you have it, you suddenly look, it's not so, so, so big at all. So Paul was motivated by the promise of a reward. Notice he said that I might gain Jesus Christ. Now you think, well, wait a minute. Haven't you already received Christ? Yes, he had. He was born again. So he had received uh, salvation. He was saved. He was uh, joined to Jesus. The prospect of heaven was certain. But he's talking now about gaining a prize, which is a much deeper intimacy, much deeper relationship, much deeper connection with Jesus Christ. And he says, if by any means I might do this. In other words, there's a possibility I might not make it. So I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I get it. If by any means there's a possibility I may not win the prize. And so he goes on, not that I've already attained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on to lay hold of this. He says, now Christ has taken hold of me because he has this in mind for me. Now I need to take hold of Jesus that I might be ready and prepared and qualify for it. So he says, I press towards the goal for the prize of this high calling. If there's a high calling, there's a low calling. He said, this is a very high calling. It's the calling of God to every believer, and it has to do with eternal rewards. And he said, it requires I press on towards that. I make a determined effort, and that uh, I forget the things that have happened or the successes of the past or the issues of the past, and I press on towards that goal. And so what is the prize? He implies the prize is winning Christ, and he implies also that the prize is by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. So this resurrection that he's referring to here is not the second resurrection. The general resurrection, everyone will rise from the dead. The word used here is the word different to the word normally used for resurrection. It's the word ek, meaning out from, anastasis, resurrection that I might attain or reach out and gain the out from resurrection, the resurrection that will lift me up and out from everyone else. So he's referring to the first resurrection, and it's a prize that he considers to be won. So every person will rise from the dead. He's saying this is the first resurrection. And even after all he's done, he's no guarantee he will qualify. So in Revelations 20 verse 5, it tells us a little bit about the first resurrection. I don't want to go into there now because it needs to be taught in much detail later on. But in Revelations 20 verse 5, it says, The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years or millennium in Christ was finished. This is the first resurrection. And how blessed and how holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. After Over such the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ. They shall reign with him on earth for a thousand years. Now, there's a lot in there, and I don't want to go into it now. If you can just understand, there are two resurrections, 
and the resurrection, which is the first resurrection, is a resurrection of reward. It's a prize to contend, to qualify for. And the outcome of winning that is that you are resurrected ahead of everyone else. You have a life on earth and a resurrection body in which you act as a representative of Christ, bringing order and uh, change to the whole of the earth. And I'll talk about that in another teaching when we talk about the millennial reign of Christ. So it is a great honor. It's a great blessing. It's a great privilege. It is a prize to be won, the first resurrection. Now, regarding this first resurrection, I'll just wait one more statement. Many of the church does not understand that it's a prize to be won. If you ask them, they don't even know there's two resurrections. They just consider everyone gets raised from the dead and that's it. However, as we'll see in another teaching, the first resurrection is a prize to be contended with. And we know that it's a prize to be contended with. He says about the first resurrection, they shall be priests of God in Christ and reign with him a thousand years. Now the promises, all the promises connected to reigning, sharing authority, bringing transformation to this world, always belong to overcomers. This is a promise given to only to people who overcome. And that's another series I'll have to do on the overcomers and what they overcome and what's involved in all of that. Okay, so the next thing is number four. Paul describes our life as a race for a prize or reward in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Several verses there. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? So run in such a way you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for a prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. So this I run, not with uncertainty, and I fight not like one who beats the air. I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest having preached to others, I might be disqualified. So notice, notice what he's saying. He's saying, our current life is like a race you run with a prize in mind. Everyone is running this race. And there's an eternal prize to be won. In the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, he says, uh, I have run my race, I have finished my course, henceforth is laid up for me a crown. So he was aware at the end of his race, the end of his life, that the prize had been won and that it was for him. And uh, But of course, we have no guarantee that's for us until we've finished our course. He must have got revelation of it. So he was aware he could be disqualified. The word disqualified means to be inspected and not approved, considered unfit to win the prize. Now think about it for a moment. If God is just, clearly he must distinguish between people who passionately serve him, walk through his process of change and, and testing, uh, and he must treat them in some way differently to those who are casual, careless, there's no prayer life, they're just casual Christians, turn up at church, no commitment to serve, they're inconsistent in their walk. Clearly, there's a distinction between those two kinds of people. And to be just, God must address that difference. So um, Paul motivated um, people who served with the hope of eternal rewards. So number five, Paul motivated people by pointing them to the reward. Here's, here's a scripture, Colossians 3, verse 22. Colossians 3.22. Now he's talking to people who are in slavery. They're being captured and now they're slaves. He doesn't say rise up and throw it off and rebel. He says this, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. And notice this, not with eye service as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as if you were doing it to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you really are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, an amazing scripture there, a lot in it. I'll just drop a few thoughts out there. He says, servants, he said, now obey or yield or submit to your, those who are over you. So he's talking, according to the verse, means just natural. So he's talking about their natural serving. Now they were forced to serve people. And those people were quite brutal and quite harsh. And he says, in your serving, don't do your serving with eye service. What does that mean? Eye service means 
you, you, you show off when the boss is around. It means you act in a certain way when you know people are watching. So eye service means I look out to see if anyone's watching and then I up my game. That's what eye service is. And he says, when you're doing eye service, you're not genuine, you're pretending. He says it's, it's basically you're, 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 um, you're uh, doing it as a man pleaser. You're, you're basically trying to get the approval of men. And he says, in our service, whatever it happens to be, whether it's big job, a little job, uh, a tedious job, uh, an insignificant job, an unseen job, he said, whatever you do in all things, he said, don't operate trying to gain the to impress people. Don't operate so you're looking really onto it when they're around, but you're not onto it when they're not there. But he says, rather have a sincere heart. Do it from the heart out of a reverence that God is watching you. And he said, whatever you do, so whatever task you have, do it full-heartedly, not negatively, not reluctantly, not half-heartedly, not with a bad attitude. Do it as if you're doing it to the Lord himself, not to people. And the reason you can do that is because you know God is watching you and you know that you are in the process of qualifying for the reward of inheritance. And he starts to now talk about the reward being an inheritance that you have to qualify for. It's a reward. Well, again, that's another whole topic to go into. The key thing is the instruction here is there is a reward. God is watching everything you do. But more than that, he's watching how you do it. So... You, you, all of us have had experience of people and they're just slack, they're inconsistent, they're, the heart's not in things, they don't do things well. They have no revelation that all of that behavior is noticed by God and is disqualifying them for eternity. So when you catch that scripture, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing of the Lord you receive the reward of inheritance. Now that changes the way you look at every task. Whether people acknowledge it or don't acknowledge it, whether they are happy with me or unhappy with me, whether they see it or don't see it is irrelevant. God sees it all, and I am in my process of qualifying. And as we'll see now, as we'll see in another session, that our life now is, is not our main ministry. Our life now is our preparatory ministry. In the millennium and in the ages to come, we enter our primary ministry. So if you can think that all you do now is your uh, apprenticeship, all you're doing now is preparing you. So no one can make a decision how you will respond to the preparation process. God's got lots of things in this preparation process, including being ignored, overlooked, treated unjustly, uh, people carrying on like you've done nothing, others getting the reward for things you've done, all of that kind of stuff. But it's all about the development of your heart that you're longing and desires to please the Lord. And then the last one then on, on this theme here at that point is uh, Jesus motivated his disciples by the promise of eternal reward. So Jesus himself moved his disciples. In Matthew 19, 27, Peter answered and said, well, we've left everything and followed you. What shall we get? That's a good question, isn't it? We've sacrificed, we've given up a lot, we're serving you, we're wholeheartedly following you, we've given up our business, we've given up our lives to follow you, what are we going to get? And he said, I assuredly, in other words, you can guarantee, you can write this on your shorts, you can guarantee it. I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory, so he's saying now, when, when Jesus, that's the Son of Man, when he comes in his kingdom and in his glory, you who have followed me shall sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, he's saying that in the coming kingdom, you will be with me. You'll sit with me. And he said, there will be 12 thrones, 12 realms of authority and rulership that I will give you that you will rule over and govern on my behalf the 12 tribes of Israel. There'll be one for each of you. So we know that Israel had 12 tribes and although they've been scattered, they will be gathered together and those in charge of them, those who will rule them, those who will guide them, those who will direct them, those who will govern them, will be the 12 apostles. So, so when do these rewards come? So as you can see now, um, uh, we've already indicated, uh, but we're going to look at this and, and show this a little more clearly now. The rewards that God has in mind are eternal rewards. That means they're not temporary. God gives temporary rewards. We are blessed with temporary rewards. We have a house, we have cars. 
have friends, we have blessing, we have favor. These are all temporary things. In the end, they all pass away. You leave more behind. So everything you can see, if you can see it and touch it, it can be left behind. But there are eternal rewards. Eternal rewards are given to us at the second coming of Christ when he comes again. And that's a whole teaching of its own, what that looks like and what that will involve. But um, Jesus taught this directly in Matthew 16, 27. He said, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and the angels, and he will reward each according to his works. How about that? He said, When the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with his angels, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is the great hope of the church, then he will reward each one. So he's talking to his disciples. So every disciple, every follower of Christ will, be, will face uh, an encounter with the Lord and at stake will not be whether you go to heaven and earth or heaven or not. What's at stake will be what the level of reward or not will be. In Revelation 22 verse 12, he says the same thing. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give everyone according to his works. So notice there that it's our work. It's what we did. And we'll have to explore that a bit more. What's required of us in another session. But um, so he said, notice the thing we're bringing out here is that uh, eternal rewards are connected to the coming of Jesus Christ. Both those scriptures indicate that. And Jesus also taught the same thing in his parables. When he taught in the parables, uh, particularly in Matthew 24 and 25, he taught about the second coming. They asked him, when are you coming again? What are the signs of the end of the age? What are the signs of your coming? And he gave several parables. And each one of the parables has to do with the issue of reward or loss at his coming. So I won't go into them today. We'll look at the parables in another time, but I'll identify them for you and tell you where they are. Uh, the first one is the parable of the wise and faithful servant, Matthew 24, verse 45 to 51. The issue there was how he handled himself in the house of God, and the issue is reward or loss. The reward is authority and responsibility in the coming kingdom. And from Matthew 24, goes on to 25, verses 1 to 13, the wise and foolish virgins. Again, the issue of reward. Some were rewarded. Some lost the reward. What was the reward? It was entrance to the celebration of the marriage supper of Jesus Christ. Uh, the third one he mentioned is in Matthew 25, verse 14 to 30, and it's about the faithful servant or the productive servants. Again, the issue is reward or loss, and the reward offered there is authority and responsibility in the coming kingdom. So there are, there are more like this. There's another one in Luke 19, 11 to 27, also about the faithful servant. And the issue again is reward or loss. And the, the reward at stake is authority over cities to rule over groups of people in the coming kingdom and establish God's order and peace and prosperity in governments. So you understand faithful over little, God responds with much. It's like the $2 now or $1,000 in a week. It's like you just can hardly compare the two. And uh, so, so all of these parables are stories with a, a lesson. And all of them are parables about the kingdom, about the coming of the Lord, and the need to prepare. So in every one of the parables, there's reward. Some are rewarded, some lose their reward, and uh, some suffer loss. And in every one of the stories there are some actions people did that others didn't do. They resulted in reward. So again, those of us studied another time, I'm just trying to get you to see that all of these have in common reward and loss, and the timing of it is to do with the coming of the Lord, the return of the Lord. And then also John saw it in end times in the book of Revelation, Revelations 11, 15, and 16. He talks about the seventh angel sounding, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever. Revelations 11, 15 and 16. And it says, We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. You've taken your great power and reign. See, again, it's the time as the taking his power. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time of the dead, they should be judged. And you should reward your servants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. And notice he connects the seventh angel sounding, the coming of the Lord, and then reward for the servants of the Lord. So those who have served the Lord faithfully will be rewarded. That brings us then to the next heading. All of our works 
will, uh, God will evaluate the works of every believer. God will evaluate the works of every believer. God will evaluate the works of every believer. Now, so the first thing then is everyone gives account of their works to the Lord. Everyone. There's one appointment we will all keep, no matter who we are. Our position is irrelevant. Our title is irrelevant. Our wealth is irrelevant. Every one of us gives account of ourselves to the Lord. Romans 14, 12. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We make it our aim or our goal, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. In other words, this is motivating me. I want to bring pleasure to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, good or bad. So knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So again, there are not only two resurrections, there are two judgments. The, the, the final judgment is the great white throne judgment found in Revelations 20, verse 11 to 15. And this judgment referred to here is called the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is where it comes at the beginning of Christ's reign on the earth. And it is where believers are evaluated as to whether they qualify to enter that kingdom, that realm, and to be rewarded. Okay, the second thing then is all our works will be evaluated by Jesus. He's interested in our stewardship uh, after we've got saved. What did you do with what was entrusted to you? In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10, and Paul is writing, he said, According to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation and another builds on it. Here's the warning. Let everyone take heed how he builds on it. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear or manifest for the day. That's the day of the Lord. will declare it or it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test everyone's work, what sort it is. Now, again, that's a whole passage for me to go into more detail. But if I can pick up some key things in it. The first is his warning. Everyone should take heed how you build, what you do. I'll, I'll touch on that a bit more in a moment. Take heed means carefully think about what you're doing, how your life is progressing, how you're building. He says, take heed how you build. In other words, the motivation the principles that you're using to build your life, the, what lies in behind it. And he warns people, uh, you can build on wood, hay, stubble. These are temporary things. The response of people, the claim of people, temporary reward, things that are just short term. And he said, these are things which are consumed by the fire because they're all about what I can get. Gold, silver, precious stones, these survive the fire. They are eternal. So for example, if I serve you in order to get something back that is wood, hay, stubble, if I serve you with no agenda but to bless you and to honor Jesus in doing so, that is gold, silver, precious stones. You understand? The same work may have been done, but it was what sort was different. And you think of people you know, they have all kinds of agendas for what they do. God sees all of that. And it's not all the things you do, what motivates what you do? What is being manifest in what you do? Is selfishness and self-centeredness and ambition being manifest? Or is there just a genuine love for people and love for Jesus? He can tell the difference. Usually people can too. Okay, and he says, so while people may get away with lots of stuff today, he said, at the coming of the Lord, it'll be tried by fire and the fire will reveal what was concealed or covered or that you didn't see. So people may look like they have a great ministry, they may look important, they may look successful, they may look like they've done very well, but God looks on the heart and sees what motivated them, what's going on, and whether this is built on the foundation of love for God and people, or whether it's built on an ambition, selfish ambition, and, uh, and desire to, to get themselves ahead. He sees the very core of our motivation and judges the works accordingly. He sees each work, it, it, what sort it is, its quality. And then, of course, he goes on to say rewards and loss are possible. If anyone's work is built endures, he will receive a reward. How about that? So in other words, if you let God test your work, if you let him access what you do, 
and he views it, then what he has in mind is his desires to reward you. So basically, if you were to look at a, uh, like a chain that's producing something, they do what they call quality testing. So they take one out and then they test the quality of it. So what they're looking for is does it meet the maker's standard or does it fall short? If it falls short, it's disapproved if it, and, and you have to adjust the process. If it passes, then it goes on. And so he's saying the same thing. He said, if anyone's work endures, he will reward it. Anyone's work is burned, he suffers loss. He will be saved, yet even by fire. So notice the issue here is not being saved. Both these people are saved. The issue here is reward or loss. If the work is burned, he suffers loss, but he's saved. So he's saved, but he's done nothing of great value that would qualify him for the things God had in mind in eternity. In other words, he failed his apprenticeship. He didn't put in the, the required labor to prepare himself that he could be qualified. If you think about it, think just about take the example of a doctor or surgeon. Now, if a guy goes through medical school, but he fails all his exams and doesn't turn up for the practicals, he's away for half of the classes, he gets to the end of the year, he won't qualify. Now, not qualifying means you didn't meet what was required to put you into a position where you can now be permitted to operate on people. Even when they come to the operating on people, there's still a process of uh, internship around that area as well. Same with a dentist, anyone doing an important job like that. You're not going to let someone operate on you who failed and didn't pass. That makes sense. Neither will God put into positions of authority and responsibility and bring into intimacy people who all their Christian walk were self-centered and ambitious and had no heart for God and for his people. Make sense? It's about our stewardship, how we've handled it. So the, what are the rewards? Now, I can't bring a big development of this, but if I just share with you what he has in mind, what are the rewards at stake? What is it he's offering? Now, these, these, each one of these is very big and will require me taking time to show you what it will be about. But... Firstly, in the coming kingdom, not everyone is the same. We like to think everyone's the same. We like to think we're all equal. We even try to equalize one another out. We'll try to get ahead of one another. But uh, in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, in the coming millennial kingdom, and all through eternity, people will occupy different realms of intimacy or closeness and companionship with Jesus. Now, that's quite stunning if you've got no love for his presence now then this has got not a big it's not something you'd want but the more you are intimate with him the more you want of him the greater the hunger so in the coming kingdom in eternity people will have different realms of level of access to jesus some will be very near to him some will be further away some will be far away a simple way of looking at that would be you have a prime minister runs the country as a normal citizen, you don't get close access to them. You get access to their representatives. It's just practical. And so in the coming kingdom, it'll be the same. Now, the second thing, you, there will be in that kingdom are different realms of service and authority and responsibility. So God has in mind that in the coming millennial kingdom, his people will occupy positions of authority and power and influence and will guide the courses of the nations, cities, nations, communities. Someone has to guide it all. And we'll, when we get on to some of the aspects of the second coming, I'll teach a session on what will we do in the millennium. Man, that's something else. Once you start to think about that, you think, oh my goodness, now I see why I'm just on an apprenticeship. Basically right now, if I can't handle what I've got, I, I'm not in no way going to be qualified to do anything great in the coming kingdom so if you see yourself in an apprenticeship it doesn't matter what your assignment is your assignment may be it's like yours one child in a school and 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 that's it and you've got very little time for anything else so that's where your assignment is god watches that and that's your qualifier he watches what you do. He watches how you do it and why you're doing it. He watches what you do in adversity. He watches the way you manage and handle and bring his life into it. As simple as that. So, so, so I don't need to compete with anyone for their position or compete with anyone for their assignment. Everyone has their own unique assignment. And even on this earth, 
as you are faithful and productive in your assignment, you get your assignment enlarged. So I had a season where I gave up a career, gave up security, gave up finances, gave up reputation to start a school which had a few, just a handful of kids in it. And that was my preparation process qualifying for a larger global ministry. So people look at the global ministry and they think, oh, I want that, how do I get that? What do I do to get there? But they don't see that actually there were lots of little decisions over the little things. You know, the managing of the tea, the cleaning the building, the, all the little stuff, cleaning the toilets, all the stuff I did. You understand that's all part of it. And so, and then the third area, there is more to it than this, but the third area is there will be different realms of resurrection glory. In other words, people tend to think of just being raised from the dead, but when we're raised from the dead, each of us will be displayed in different levels of glory in a way that everyone can see what kind of life we've lived. Now, how about that? In other words, no one knows what you're doing in secret. No one knows your secret pain, your secret struggles, your secret temptations, your secret fears, the, the pressures you've gone through, the loneliness you've walked through. But God sees it all. And in eternity, we will be surprised that he will ascribe to people we would never have thought of immense glory because of the kind of life they lived before him. Now, you understand then, this, all of this teaching suddenly you set your eyes on eternity eternity's real the rewards are real and everything i'm doing now is either preparing me for it or disqualifying me from it and it's got nothing to do with what anyone else is doing it's got totally to do with my decision to live a life with jesus at the center and on, and i honor him so these rewards that he promises they begin in the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000 years when he rules on the earth, literally, and they go on for eternity. So when you come to the point where, he, where the kingdom starts, whatever he decides regarding you is irreversible and unchangeable. You are what you are, and you have qualified or disqualified or qualified to a certain level or whatever. So that gives incentive for all of us to be faithful and productive and do the very best with what we have. Whatever you do, do it from the heart unto the Lord, not with eye services pleasing men, knowing this, that God is preparing you for a reward. Okay, so we just finished then on the last section I want to look at, which is the wise and the foolish builders. And um, so Jesus' conclusion in the Sermon of the Mount, his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is, uh, um, is the context of this. And Jesus concluded it at the end of it in Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we did many wonders in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I like him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house and didn't fall. It was founded on a rock. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do them, like the foolish man built his house on sand, the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat the house and it fell down. It was a great fall. So firstly, the context of the teaching. This is the Sermon on the Mount where he's teaching what? He's teaching the heart required to operate in the kingdom. He's teaching the core heart values and lifestyle of the kingdom. He's teaching about the heart of the kingdom. So all of his teaching there in the, in, the, in the Beatitudes are about the kind of heart you cultivate. A hungry heart, a humble heart, a meek heart, a pure heart. You understand? Uh, all of these. And then at the end of the sermon, he finishes it off and he starts to talk about the coming millennial kingdom. So part of God's kingdom is present with us now. In the millennium, all of it will come in its fullness in, a, in great power that will be irresistible. So now, so he's talking then about the entrance. You notice what he said. He uses these words, uh, as I said, um, that day. Many will say in that day. So when the Bible uses the term that day, it's referring to the second coming of the Lord to establish his kingdom. It's called also the day of the Lord, 
It's also called the great and terrible day. It's great for some and terrible for others. Now again, that's another whole teaching, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a, is a, is a period of time, not just a, a 24-hour day. So when it says that day, it's taught about the coming of the Lord. And it refers to the period of time just before the millennial reign of Christ, when he'll shake the nations and then his kingdom will manifest. So notice what Jesus warned his disciples. He said, many, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall end the kingdom, he does the will of my Father. So it's this parable or story with the truth. What he's saying is, there's something required of you. And not everyone who does things in the church is going to qualify. He said, many will say in that day, many, many. Well, we did miracles, we prophesied, cast out demons. He said, no, you don't qualify. And he'll tell you why they didn't qualify in a moment. So notice then, um, we're all builders of some kind of house. Every one of us is a builder. The word son and the word daughter both come from the root to build the father's house. So when, whenever God calls us sons and daughters, he's saying we are builders. So the first house you build is your own life, your character, your heart. So you are responsible for your heart attitudes, your heart values, for your character, the development of your life. No one can do it for you. Uh, we are builders of marriage. Marriages have to be built. Families have to be built. Finances have to be built. Business has to be built. Church is built. Nothing happens. Ministries are built. So uh, Jesus says then, the wise man and the foolish man, which are you? Both were building and both of them, the exterior looked similar. They had similar materials, but it was the foundation was different. The, the, the exterior is what you can see. The foundation is what you can't see. And a one, it's only seen by God. God looks at your heart. So he sees you may look successful, but he sees what it really is all made of. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, Jesus, uh, the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look on the appearance or the physical stature, for I've refused him. The Lord doesn't see like man sees. The man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. God always looks on the heart. So no matter what you've built with your life, it's your heart God is interested in. So your exterior success is not nearly as important to God as what motivated it or what was in your heart as you did it. And notice he says, in the storms come upon the wise man and the foolish man. So no one's exempt from the storms. It said, the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house. So rain refers to divinely initiated storms. Rain comes from heaven. The rain that comes means that God initiates a storm that uncovers what's going on in your life. So some storms come from God and they expose what our life is like. And the, he says floods came. Floods often refer to the actions of ungodly people. Ungodly people. So some things that come against us are unkind, unloving, and often very uh, hurtful mistreatment by people. They're the floods. And the winds refer to the pressure of demonic spirits. So we can have storms come into our life that can come from God. They can come from... Uh, um, from people's behavior towards us, uh, bad treatment of us. They can come from demonic spirits directly, but the storms will reveal what the foundation of your life is like, what you're built on. So storms come now, currently in life, and they're to grow you. But at the end, every storm is to expose the condition of your heart to give you opportunity to change. At the end, he's saying, at the coming of the Lord, then God's going to uncover the whole deal, what you really built. So who's the wise man? Well, the wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. What does that mean? Unfortunately, Jesus explained exactly what it means to build your house on the rock. Now, the Bible tells us in more than one place that God is a rock. You know, Psalm 18:31, who is a God except the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? There are many Many examples. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, it says the rock is Christ. So when it's using rock, it's something that's stable, that can stand up to storms because it's eternal in value. But Jesus actually, in the, in the passage, says exactly what it means. Here's what he says. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken them to the wise man who built his house on the rock. We're not talking about everything Jesus is saying, he's, although it can apply to that. He's saying, 
whoever hears these sayings of mine. Now he's just concluding his Sermon on the Mount. So when he says these sayings of mine, it's referring to what he's just taught, which is about the heart values of the kingdom. He said, whoever hears these heart values of the kingdom, what I require to establish and build my kingdom, whoever hears and puts those into his life and applies them, that man is the stable man. That's the man who'll stand the test of storms. So the teaching he's referring to are the core heart values of the kingdom. In other words, there is a need for a transformed heart. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You want to receive from God expansion to your life and your influence? Develop the quality of meekness. Put, focus on developing a meek heart. You want to be lifted up and given greater promotion? God says develop a humble heart. Humble yourself. He will lift you up. And so there's all kinds of things through the teachings there that are heart issues. So in other words, basically in the, in the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, um, you find constant reference to the motivation, not just what people did, but the why they did it. And I'll give you a few examples of it that come up in there and then we'll finish. Uh, so for example, in, Ma in Matthew 5.46, Matthew 5.46, if you love those who love you, what reward have you even the sinners will do that. Notice he said, if you love those who love you. So basically, you're doing a payback. They gave you, you don't want to be indebted to them, so you're paying them back. So he said, if that's all you do, there's no reward. There's no eternal reward in that. Um, in Luke 6.35, he's also talking the same thing. He said, he said, if you love your enemies and do good and lend and hope for nothing in return, your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. In other words, he's saying that giving and kindness that has no personal agenda will be rewarded by God because it carries the heart of the kingdom, carries the heart of the king. It represents the king. He talks the same thing about giving. Take heed you don't do your charitable meeds before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father in heaven. Notice here, gave money to the poor. Okay, was that good? Was it bad? I don't know. Why'd they do it? So if we do it, so people will notice and say, man, it's great, Steve, great. Then you've got your reward. But if we give and there's no, we don't announce what we've done. We don't try to get approval from people. We just secretly give as God directs us, as God leads us and guides us. He said, I see it, I will reward. So remember, you can't have the reward both ways. If you, if you try to get it by impressing people, you can't have it from God. If you want it from God, don't worry about impressing people. And fortunately, what happens is that we do things and we serve and we give and often it's overlooked. It's not even noticed. And that tests out, are you doing it for the Lord? Are you doing it to be someone acknowledging you, someone saying, oh, you're great, you're wonderful. And always it'll be withheld. Always. If that's what you're looking for, you'll never get enough and eventually you get offended. And that's what happens to many people, get offended. Because what they were looking for, they were not giving. They were not loving. They were trading. <coughs> trading means... I give you this, but I expect something in return. So they gave something, but they wanted something in return they never said. It didn't come, so then they get upset. And it's the same for praying. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who like to pray and stand in the streets to be seen by men. Notice the motivation here is to be seen by men rather than be seen by God. So when we come into the age of the kingdom, we're going to be amazed at people who are honored by God. They were praying and giving and doing things. We never saw them. They never had a position in the church. No one ever noticed them. They ever walked past them. But they quietly got on serving God and doing what they were called to do. And God noticed. He's, he refers to it too, again the motivation for fasting. When you're fasting, don't be like the hypocrites, put on a sand face and announce everything, but rather do it secretly that your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So notice then, the whole issue here of the foundation is the motivation for what we do. The motivation flows through like a river, everything you do. If there's love, generosity, humility, kindness, the, 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 the characteristics of the kingdom, it touches everything you do and it brings God's favor on it. You work hard, you give, you serve, but always you're looking for something, trying to get something. Somehow, it never cuts it. It never seems to get a return. It's like, what is wrong? I've done everything. Why is nothing happening? And we haven't seen it's a hard issue. So then he just talks in, who's the foolish man? 
well, he didn't align his heart with God. He he was he didn't let his heart be transformed, and uh, so his his works were all built with people in mind. So Jesus then um, laid it out very very clearly. He said, "Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, did many wonders in your name." So those the prophecy, miracles, deliverance. But what was missing? What was missing was the heart motivation. There's no, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, If you prophesy and know all these things, but there's no love, he is like empty and clanging, it profits nothing. So what he's saying then is many are like that. Many use God's gifts, use God's grace, use God's resources to impress people and gain recognition. And he said all of that will count for nothing. And then he, he says what's going on. He said... One, I never knew you. Two, you practice lawlessness. So what does he mean by that? He means these things. First, I never knew you. He means they lacked real intimacy with Jesus and heart transformation. Relationship with Jesus is designed to bring progressive change in our heart. The more we're loved, the more loving we become. The more he touches us, the more we want to touch and bless people. So, so when he says, I never knew you, the word knew is the word used to describe intimacy of a husband and a wife. It's a very deep intimacy. And uh, the first priority we have is an intimate relationship with Jesus to know him. It's like a lifelong journey, deepening my connection to him, bringing the little things of my life to him, having it invade the little parts of my life. And uh, it results in heart transformation. So... Uh, God is looking for people who want to know him and want to find what he wants. So you can either live your life pleasing everyone, doing what everyone else wants, or you're a great person doing this, doing that. But the key, key question was, did you do what God designed you to do? Or did you fit someone else's plan? Really, we'll always come down to that. And so the first reason they were rejected was because of a deep lack of ongoing intimacy that led to transformation of their heart. Jesus, in contrast, in John 17, verse 4, said, I have brought honor to you. I finished the work you gave me to do, and I manifested your name or revealed your heart. So we see it all in there. And the second thing he says, you're workers of iniquity. That word means to be distorted from God's original intention or plan. Probably it means to promote yourself. So what he's saying is, you never made me your first priority and grew in the knowledge of me and had a transformation of heart so you become like me, what you did instead was you promoted yourself and used the gifts for your benefit and for your advancement. So you can see then that the labors had no eternal value because of what motivated them. Their heart remained. And he said, great will be the fall. So the key challenge then is as we just go through it very simply, just as an overview. One, eternal rewards are real. God is a rewarder, and people throughout the Bible have been motivated by that hope. God's eternal rewards are rewards that go into the, into the millennium. They start at the millennium, go into the millennium, and right through to eternity. In other words, they're given at Jesus' coming. And Jesus taught it directly that he would reward people at his coming. He taught it in his parables indirectly. John saw it in his teaching, in his revelation, in, in the book of Revelation. The third thing we saw was God is going to evaluate each one of us. Every person will give account of themselves. And what we'll give account of ourselves for is how, what sort of work we've done. What was the motivation in it? He will check all of our work is that what sort or what value there is in the work. If it's motivated by love and the desire to honor God and love people, then it's work that lasts the fire. If it's motivated by self-promotion, self-interest, it won't last. Uh, we saw then that rewards are at stake, and the rewards involve increasing intimacy with Jesus. It involves uh, authority and responsibility in his kingdom. It involves realms of glory in our resurrection body. And then we saw finally that we can choose to be a wise or a foolish builder. The wise builder understands that the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, 7, the Sermon on the Mount, are designed to show us the heart characteristics of the kingdom that will cause a stable life that will be rewarded.
And uh, we saw also Jesus spoke that at the day of the Lord, there will be a massive shaking that will uncover everything that people have built. God will see to it that everything we've done will be brought to the light. The wise one will have built his life on a revelation of Jesus Christ and obedience to him. The foolish man will have heard all of this stuff, but there's been no transformation, no change. He basically still does his own thing. The key thing is here, he that, he that does the will of my father. Doing the will of my father, the first thing is his desire for intimacy. Second, his desire for us to change. Thirdly, his desire to discover and fulfill our assignment. So there it is, kingdom rewards, the introduction to it. And I've just started you off, and once you start, you see it's like a huge thing in the Bible. There's many kind of topics that we can just branch out from in all of these areas. We can go into the area of the day of the Lord. We can go into the area of the second coming. We can go into look at the area of uh, what are the rewards, the different rewards of uh, the uh, wedding uh, feast, the reward of uh, ruling and reigning with Christ, the reward of the different realms of glory and the different resurrections. We could go look at then uh, some of the things around the motivation and then and, and so on. How do you become intimate? How do you become faithful? Uh, how do you qualify? All of those areas. And that's the theme around eternal rewards. So there you go. That's been a, uh, given out a lot.